This election season, we've heard a lot of this. She doesn't have the look. She doesn't have the stamina. And this. A man who can be provoked by a tweet should not have his fingers anywhere near the nuclear codes. If you watched any of the three presidential debates, you may have noticed that both Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump spent more time discussing each other's character and temperament than explaining what they would do as president. And the issue that was hardly ever mentioned? Education. This is Educate, a podcast from APM Reports about ideas and research on how we teach and learn. I'm Stephen Smith. We wanted to know where the presidential candidates stand on big issues like college debt and school testing. So we invited Emily Richmond on the podcast. She is the public editor for the Education Writers Association. I started out by asking Emily to explain what big questions the next president will face. Perhaps the most important thing is the biggest change to federal education policy in 15 years. And that, of course, is the replacement of No Child Left Behind with the Every Student Succeeds Act. And what that did is it restored a lot of control to states for things like making sure students have effective teachers, improving their lowest performing schools. And that's going to be what the next president has to face right out of the gate, is appointing an education secretary who's going to oversee how that law is actually implemented. Let's drill down to a couple of issues. And here is a clip from a Donald Trump campaign video. If our young people and people in general want to live the American dream, it all begins with education. It's so important. And yet as a country, we have common core. It's a disaster. It's run from Washington. It's not run locally. Okay, for folks who may not know, can you briefly describe what the controversy around the common core is? I mean, for example... Uh, the Common Core is not a policy, of, as I, if I recall correctly, that comes from Washington. It's not. And what is really sort of striking to people is that Common Core started out with tremendous bipartisan support. It actually began as a compact among the nation's governors saying that it did make sense to have some national standards, some national expectations for what children would be able to do, what they would know by grade level. So that, for example, a third grader in Massachusetts would be on roughly the same page of expectations as somebody in California. What it doesn't do is it doesn't mandate curriculum. It does not mandate what teachers teach in the classroom. But it has become this lightning rod for what's seen as federal overreach. And a lot of states have it, over 40 of them. And in some places, they've simply changed the name to get away from this sort of toxic branding of Common Core while keeping the standards, which themselves are sometimes less controversial than the optics of the federal overreach. And are those 40 states or any significant number of them experiencing a disaster? Well, it's, it's really too early to tell. And, and that's one of the big problems we have here is no one sees the Common Core state standards as a quick fix. This is the kind of thing that takes years to implement, years to get entrenched, years to figure out the testing. And it could be many years from now before we're able to look back and see some gains or improvements. But to say that it's a disaster is, is probably a misstep to say it's failed already. It, it may be too early for anyone to make that judgment. And what does Hillary Clinton say about the Common Core? She's been in support of standards since early on, since the time she was a first lady of Arkansas. She spoke up in favor of um, having some expectations at grade level, and she's reaffirmed that support. The area where she's kind of broken off from being a, you know, a wholesale cheerleader is to say that some of the testing may not be as strong as it should be, and she wants people to take a look at that. And that would, of course, be the common assessments that some states have agreed to use. And there certainly have been issues with those in terms of problems with implementation, mostly 
or schools simply weren't ready to use the online exams. Okay, now here's a clip of former Secretary of State Hillary Clinton speaking this past summer at the NEA. That's the country's largest teachers union. And when schools get it right, whether they're traditional public schools or public charter schools, let's figure out what's working. Now let's figure out what's working and share it with schools across America. Okay, well, you can hear the crowd booing there uh, as she, I assume, uh, they're booing at the mention of charter schools. What's going on? To be fair, I don't think that's the first time ever an NEA audience has booed the mention of charter schools, so we probably shouldn't pin all of that on Hillary Clinton. One of the issues here is that charters are seen by some educators as usurping the role of traditional public schools and that they drain away resources, high-achieving students, and engaged families. But it's interesting what she said about let's see what's working, because when charter schools were first created, that was what they were supposed to be. They weren't supposed to be a replacement for traditional public schools. They were supposed to be incubators for great ideas. They were supposed to be lighthouses that were going to shine the way for public education to improve itself. But instead, it's become this incredibly divisive thing. And she has spoken up in support of charters within certain limits. And she's also made a distinction between for-profit and non-profit charter schools. And, And some charter opponents feel that might just be splitting hairs. Trump has repeatedly announced that uh, he's committed to so-called school choice. Can you tell us about his plan and what it would look like for the country? I would love to tell you about it. Can you tell me about it? Because we have a lot of questions among education reporters on how it would work. Uh, You know, I mentioned that he said he would spend $20 billion so that every student could go to a successful, high-achieving school. But he hasn't said where that money would come from or or what exactly it would look like. You know, we have to learn from our mistakes. And it's important to know that under No Child Left Behind, there was a big attempt to push school choice, to give parents more freedom to send their child to a higher achieving school. But it just didn't happen on any kind of meaningful level. And when I say no meaningful level, I'm talking in some districts, one to three percent of eligible students actually got to move from a low achieving school to a higher achieving campus. And there were a couple of reasons for that. Some of them were parents didn't know they had a choice. In some cases, there wasn't a higher achieving school that had open seats that a family could reasonably get their child to. And in many, many cases, parents said, you know what? We understand these rankings, but we actually like our neighborhood school. We're happy with our teachers and principals, and we're going to stay. So it's one thing to say we're going to put out money for more school choice, but if you don't have the buy-in from the families, you don't have the capacities at the campus, it's an empty promise. I know you're speaking from home, and I believe you have a dog in the uh, in your house there. Does What's the dog's name, and what's his or her policy on school choice? <laughs> Mr. Jones is a Wheaton Terrier who's being trained right now. I apologize for that interruption. You know, he is an agnostic on school choice. I think um, that's probably the best thing for a dog to be. Yeah, I would think. Um, We've seen both candidates talking about what they would do to ease the burden of college debt for students. Is it possible that the next president could actually help make some meaningful change in this area? You know, that's a great question, because again, this is a promise that would be tremendously expensive and very difficult to do. It's also was something of a of a pivot for Secretary Clinton on higher education policy. And a lot of people saw this as an olive branch extended to the supporters of Senator Bernie Sanders. As you know, he campaigned very heavily on this issue, and he counted young voters, many of whom have very high college debt, among his fiercest supporters. 
But, you know, prior to that, she had said that his proposal was just too expensive to be realistic and it wasn't going to happen. So what we need to know now is why she changed her mind, what those financials would look like, and how it would happen. There are folks who say her choice of education secretary may be a way to see how committed she is to making that happen. Um, Alison Klein, who writes for Education Week, has suggested that the next education secretary could actually come from higher ed. It could be a well-known and well-respected college president who may be a more effective advocate for this really costly proposal. What about Donald Trump and student debt? He has indicated that um, he thinks there should be an end to the federal student loan programs making a profit off of students when they make those repayments. But he hasn't gone much beyond that. But it is someplace where Trump and the Republicans do agree. And, and the Republicans did make it part of their party platform, calling for an end directly to federal student loan program and restoring what they called private sector participation in student financing. They want more for-profit education options for students, not fewer, and that includes when it comes to their loans. You mentioned the appointment of the next Secretary of Education, and certainly Nation doesn't follow uh, that appointment with uh, nearly the attention it gives to the Supreme Court, but presumably it's a position of some importance. And are there uh, candidates in mind that, uh, for either side that are worth talking about? I think there probably are, but really, I think it's more what stream they're going to come from. I'm curious whether it could be a governor, given that the replacement for No Child Left Behind, ESSA, restores a significant amount of control and oversights to states. And the next secretary is going to have to start approving these individual state plans for improvement. Um, some of these states have them due as early as March. Others have until next summer. But if you had a governor in place, somebody who's really attuned to state policy and probably knows a lot of these state leaders, it could be a smoother transition. What lesser-known education-related problems would you like to see the next president tackle? What do you think that is being missed in the conversation? Well, it's been touched on, but not very really explicitly discussed. And that, of course, is the resegregation of the nation's public schools. The Democrats, for the very first time, made it part of their education platform to look at the school-to-prison pipeline. That's the terminology used for the fact that so many students who end up in school disciplinary situations often end up in prison. And there is a direct route that can be seen from lower educational attainment and opportunity in the lower grades directly to what happens to them when they leave the high school setting. And, you know, the next president's going to have to bring together a lot of disparate special interest groups. We've got students of color facing significant and documented discrimination in schools. As I said, schools are more segregated right now than at any time since the 1960s. And that's going to be a big burden to overcome. We've got campuses, college campuses, where we've seen um, unrest and disagreements on public policy that have spurred really important movements like the Black Lives Matter movement. And that's certainly not going to go away. Emily Richmond is the public editor for the Education Writers Association. She joined us from Ann Arbor, Michigan. And uh, my best regards to Mr. Jones, your dog. <laughs> Thank you very much. That was a lot of fun. You can find a link to Emily's work at apmreports.org. To get there, click on Podcasts. Also, while you're there, take a look at our archive of documentaries on education and a lot of other interesting subjects. We'd love to hear what this podcast made you think about, really. Click on the About tab at apmreports.org and send us a note. Or it would be great if you would write us a review on iTunes. That way, other people will be able to find the podcast. 
We are on Facebook at APM Reports, and we're on Twitter, where our handle is at Educate Podcast, one word. Support for APM Reports comes from Lumina Foundation and the Spencer Foundation. I'm Stephen Smith. Thanks for listening. This is APM. <laughs>